welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, how's everyone doing this morning? It is good to see you guys in person for as long as we can. We don't know what the, the future has, but uh, I thought we'd, we'd continue. Hopefully, we'll wrap up our study on anger this morning. That's, that's my goal. Um, I'm kind of done with this course, uh, personally. But, um, but I thought it would be fun to share a couple of funny jokes, just to kind of open it up, lighten the mood a little bit. So husband says to his wife, when I get mad at you, you never fight back. How do you, how do you control your anger? And the wife replies, well, I, I clean the toilet. Husband's a little confused, and he says, well, how does that help? And the wife says, I use your toothbrush. <laughs> Here's another one. Um, I, I heard that it's a good way to let go of your anger is to write letters to the people you hate and then burn them. It really helps a lot. Now you just got to figure out what to do with the letters. It's fun to joke about anger sometimes and make those funny jokes, but uh, the reality is anger often is not a joking matter. It's a, it's a powerful emotion, and, and therefore it can be expressed in powerful ways, for both for good and for bad effects. Uh, so that's why we've been taking some time trying to understand the, the sources of that anger so that we can reply and respond in healthy ways and not in that unhealthy, flesh-controlled way. So last time we looked at two sources of anger. We looked at one, which is this anger that's, that's really fueled by our shame, fueled by embarrassment, fueled by a sense of failure, where we're, we're feeling that, that, that shame rise up within us and we have to do something to express it, to kind of burn off the shame and it, that shame gets converted or expressed in an anger sort of way. And, and so it's basically it's just a way of protecting ourselves or covering up. The other one we looked at is this idea of blocked goals. And so things, when things aren't going our way. So remember, we talked about like things like road rage, or maybe you're struggling with, with the vid. Because you need a short form for a short form, right? Like COVID's not enough, right? So, so waiting in express lines that aren't so express. You know, anything that you want to see happen that isn't happening, this block goal, can cause uh, this anger to rise up within us where we're going to use our anger now to unblock our goal, to kind of make things happen the way we want to. And so there's, there's many different sources of anger. We're not going to be able to, to look at all of them. But the last time I, I spoke, Fred sent me an email, and I thought it was so good I, it's, it's worth mentioning it. But, but just briefly, there, there's, there could be a physical source to our anger. Remember, we're, we're comprised of these three parts, a spirit, a soul, and a body. And, and the three are unique. And, and they're, they're one, but not the same. And so they're, they're connected in this way, where, where one influences the other. So, for example, we might feel anger because we're hungry, right? There's hangry out there. And so if you don't have enough food in your belly, this anger might begin to come out. Or, or maybe it's a lack of sleep where you're tired and you're more on edge and your nerves are a little bit more frayed. Maybe it's medication side effects or brain tumors or, or even just pain and irritability can cause anger, right? I mean, think about it. Ladies, when, when you were in labor, you didn't mean all those things you said, right? Not all of them. Many of them, but not all, right? So sometimes that anger can, can come from physical pain. 
But on the other side of the spectrum, it might be a spiritual side, where the spiritual side is influencing our soul in the case of demonic influence. And so if we've created an opening for the demonic in our lives, so for example, if we've um, messed around with Ouija boards or, or other demonic activities and so forth, um, then we've opened a door where maybe some kind of demonic activity is happening. Now, please understand, as believers, as Christians, you cannot be possessed or owned by a demon. It doesn't work that way, right? Because you've got Jesus Christ living in your spirit. In fact, so much so that he's one with your spirit. How does a demon take up residence in there? It doesn't work that way. You are not only possessed or owned by Jesus, but, but he's got the rights to you. But that doesn't mean you can't be harassed by a demon. And so when that's happening, then what we can do is, is we, can, we can reject, by the authority that's been given to us, we can reject that demon. We can reject that influence and experience that freedom. And so there's all kinds of different sources uh, of anger, but we're going to look at two more uh, this morning, and, um, and hopefully then we can, we can be done with this study. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to know that you are our teacher, you are our speaker, and that you're going you're gonna to be the one to speak through me on this topic of anger that, that really is impacting all of us. There's not a single person that doesn't struggle with this at some point, to some level. And so I pray, Father, that your words would be words of life and encouragement and hope and healing for us so that we can understand the role that you have for anger, but also how to, how to not give in to the temptation of the flesh to let the anger control us. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so the first one we're going to look at is we want to look at the anger that's connected to our past hurts, past hurts that haven't been addressed, that we haven't really dealt with, that instead just kind of sits unresolved in our soul. You see, we live in a sin-cursed world. I mean, that's just a simple reality of it. And, and you live here long enough, and you will encounter many, many different kind of hurts. And, and I promise you, nobody is walking in the freedom that God's given you. Nobody. We're all still dealing with some things from our past because the reality is you are far more free than you ever thought of. And so here are some examples from past hurts. It might be maybe the unfaithfulness of a spouse or a girlfriend or a, or a past boyfriend. It might be betrayal by a family member or, or a close friend. And the reality is the closer the person is, the deeper the betrayal, the deeper the hurt. It might be a trauma from a sexual abuse or sexual assault growing up, or, or maybe that you were neglected by a parent, or worse, by both parents. Maybe it's the disappointment we feel um, when, when one or both of our parents are growing up. They just, they just never, never thought we were good enough. That we're just, just the failures. We're an embarrassment to the family name. Or, or maybe it's a hurt that's come from a grief that we just didn't know how to deal with. The grief of a failed marriage or no marriage, the loss of a child, the, the loss of a dream, or, or maybe your life just isn't what you thought it would be at this point. And, and whatever it is, this, this type of baggage just doesn't go away on its own. As much as we wish it would, as much as we'd want it to, it just doesn't go away. It's sort of like, like an unfinished puzzle. You know, you, you take an unfinished puzzle and you go and you put it on a bookcase and you come back, you know, a week, month, a year later, it's not magically finished. It's still left unfinished. And that's what happens with these hurts, these, these pains. If we don't address them, if we don't deal with them, then they, they remain just sitting there. And unlike the puzzle, can actually begin to get worse. 
And so just forgetting about it doesn't make it disappear. So this type of anger can be a deep-rooted anger, something that we may not even realize how far back it goes. So we're going to face this anger, then we deal with this anger really in two parts. And, and the first part is that we need to forgive, and the other part of it is we need to tend to the hurt. Now, I understand there's, there's some differences in there. And, and so let me explain it to you this way. I often use this illustration in counseling with people when they're trying to understand the difference because they'll, they'll talk about how they grew up and, and maybe in their... Um, uh, you know, growing up as, as a child, their, their, their parents, one or both, was just very demeaning, very cutting, very harsh, very demanding. And so they never felt like they were good enough. And, and then many years later, now they're an adult and, and their, their parent comes to them and says, I'm sorry for what I've done to you. And, and the child there is able to, now a grown-up adult, is able to forgive them. And that's, that's great, that's wonderful, but there's still the untended hurt. See, it's sort of like if if someone punches me and breaks my jaw and I forgive them because I'm a good Christian, right? That's what we do. And so I forgive them. What do I still have? I still have a broken jaw and I now need to get the broken jaw fixed. And so the forgiveness is important, but you also need to now tend to the hurt of that. And so we're going to be, we're going to look at the, the forgiveness part really briefly this morning because we're going to get to it in more detail in a number of weeks as we go forward here. But, but I just want to talk about it in briefly. What essentially forgiveness is, is where I come to understand the cost. I come to understand what was the impact of what this person's actions had on me. What did they take away from me? Or what did they saddle me with? Did, did they saddle me with shame? Did they sa saddle me with a sense of failure and not good enough? Did they take away love and, and self-worth? Did they, they leave me feeling insecure? What is it they owe me? And so forgiveness involves us counting the cost, understanding the impact of that, and then choosing to release that debt, choosing to let that go. And like I said, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at more of what that means and how we do that, but essentially it's recognizing what Jesus has done and what he's given to us. Allows us to let that go and release the debt so we can be free. So that's a great mistake that people don't understand about forgiveness is they, they think forgiveness might be letting the other person off the hook. But the reality is forgiveness is for me. It's so that I don't carry around this bitterness and this hurt that leads to even more anger and, and more frustration and so forth. And so it's, it's letting go of that debt so I can experience the freedom that Jesus has given to us. So that's the first part of, of just letting go of the hurt. But now we got, or forgiving the hurt, but now we need to tend to it. We need to experience that healing that God, that God wants to give us. And again, part of that is acknowledging the grief, acknowledging the hurt, which means, and this is where it gets really uncomfortable, which means facing them up close, which means admitting that I was hurt. And, and this is especially difficult if you spent most of your life running from your pain, running from those, that past, running from that hurts, and you're so afraid to deal with it. There's a, there's a great quote by, uh, by an author I like, John Eldridge. He, he wrote a book called Get Your Life Back. And I, I thought he just, he, he just summarized it so well about this idea of losses. And he says this. He says, just begin to name your losses. Write them down. What was lost? A friendship? A hope? An opportunity that might have shaped your future? It's so important to name it. 
When I say put some words to it, I mean out loud. Say to the room around you what you are uncovering. How that discovery makes you feel better still, I encourage you to write it down. Has a movie or song brought you to tears recently? Perhaps a song that always brings a few tears. Play it again and pay attention. Why? What is awakening within you? Put some words to it. The neglected losses are there. Give them a voice. Then what? Allow your soul to feel. Don't tell it what to feel. It knows what to do. Just give it permission. It might be anger at first. It might be sadness. It might be loneliness. Why bother? You might find yourself shouting some profanities. That's okay. Your losses matter. Don't edit yourself in the silence. Anger is a pretty common first reaction to unattended loss. See, it's so important that we recognize it. See, if we don't recognize it, if we continue in that denial, how do you ever deal with it? If I've got that broken jaw and I just pretend that everything's fine, I never get it tended to, I never get it healed, and so it just remains damaged going forward. And so I need to face it, I need to, need to be aware of it, and, and it's okay that you were hurt. You weren't supposed to get through the end of the, to the end of this world without never getting hurt. It's okay. Just admit it. Be honest with yourself. Don't live in that place of denial. And so we acknowledge it. We recognize it. Now what do we do with it? Well, let's, let's continue on with the quote. He goes on and he says this. He says, what you're doing through this practice is becoming present to your own soul, to places that were left behind. The next step, is to invite Jesus in. Invite his love, his comfort, his presence into this specific loss. For his presence brings mercy and healing. I, am fi I find it important to ask, what do you have to say about this God? What are you saying to me about my losses? His comforting words of interpretation or promise are part of the healing. Sometimes what I need to is to walk by a little stream. I just need to sit and sitting by water really helps. Beauty heals. Beauty contains within the promise of restoration. See, the key there, what's so powerful in that is we're bringing it to Jesus to let Jesus speak to us about what happened. You see, the, the reality is when something happened to us, we, we take that event to say something about who we are and our self-worth. And that event begins to define us in some way, and we carry that definition forward. We carry that event into our future events and the next events, except now we're, we're looking at life a little bit differently. And the logic of it doesn't matter. Instead, what's happened, the, the real damage isn't the event itself. The damage is how it changes my soul, how it's deformed my soul and how I see myself, how I see God, and how I see other people. You know, in counseling, I'm... I'm I've never, I've, never, I've never stopped to be amazed. I understand it, but it still shocks me when I sit there and across from me is someone who's, who's now in their 40s, mid-40s, who 40 years ago went through sexual abuse when they were four or five years old. And they sit there now as a full-grown adult and they look at me and they say, it was all my fault. I did something to cause it. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have been so sexual. 
I, I, should have, I shouldn't have been so stupid. I shouldn't have been so foolish when that 40-year-old uncle or father or grandfather or whoever, when they abused me. And again, I sit there and I, I understand where they're coming from, but it just amazes me that as an adult, you would somehow think that a five-year-old would cause that kind of abuse. But you see, what's happened is the enemy has taken that event and they've interpreted it for us. Isn't that kind of them? They've interpreted it for us in a way that distorts the truth. So that event now says more about you than it does about the other person. So we go through life now feeling that lie that it was my fault, that I deserved it, that I did something wrong. And I can't let anybody know because if they know, what are they going to think about me? They're going to they're think that I'm perverted. They're going to think that I'm, I'm a reject, that there's something wrong with me. And so I got to hide this. And that lie has deformed my soul, deformed how I see the world, how I see myself. And most devastatingly, how we see God. And so we, we bring it to God. We bring it to God to allow him to define what's real and what's true. We'll do this real briefly, but there's, there's a great story at the end of John chapter 1. And uh, Jesus, he's sort of, he's, he's getting the team together, right? He's, he's called uh, Peter and, and Andrew, and, and he's got John, and, and so he's starting to get the disciples together, and he, and he calls Philip, says, Philip, come follow me. And Philip says, well, I gotta I got get my buddy Nathaniel, because he and I, we've been, we've been waiting for this moment. We've been dreaming of this moment. So he goes and he runs off and he says, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, we found the, the one. We found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel looks at him and says, what good has ever come from Nazareth? So I just kind of picture Nazareth must have been a bit like Buffalo right? What good has come from Buffalo, right? So what, what good has come from Nazareth, right? So that's sort of this idea. And, and Philip says, well, come and see, come and see. All right. So he gets up and he kind of walks with Philip and he, and he sees Jesus. And Jesus sees Nathaniel and he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. There's no guile. There's no, nothing wrong there. And Nathaniel's looking at Jesus and going, Buddy, you don't know me. We've never met. How can you make such a declaration that I have noticed? You don't know me. And in the back of his mind, he's thinking, in fact, if you did know me, you would never say that. Because there was this one event, this one time, changed everything. And Jesus, without any, hearing anything else, he just says, before Philip called you, while you're under the tree, I saw you. Now, please understand, it's not that, that when Philip left Jesus to get Nathaniel, he was just like kind of 50 yards down the road and sitting under a tree, and Jesus saw the two of them talking, and, and that's how he knew. That's not what's happening, because that wouldn't tell, tell Nathaniel that Jesus was the Messiah, because that's what he declared afterwards. That would just tell us that Jesus had good vision. Instead, Jesus was referring to an event in Nathaniel's past. Something happened under a tree. And I don't know if it happened to him or he did it to someone else, but, but something happened that shaped Nathaniel's soul, that left him with such shame, such insecurity, until Jesus told him the truth. 
Nathaniel. There's nothing wrong with you. There's no deceit in you. That, that lie that you've carried ever since that moment isn't true. Let me replace the lie with what is true. And that changed everything for Nathaniel going forward. And that's what we do with our hurts. We bring them to Jesus and we say, Jesus, this is the lie that I've been believing, that it was my fault, that I'm dirty, that I'm guilty, that there's something wrong with me. What's the truth? And Jesus tells us the truth. That that event maybe wasn't, wasn't about you, it was about someone else and their struggles. Or maybe it's something you did. Maybe you're the one that was, was older and bullying someone else or abusing someone else or your failure, your sin caused all this damage. And Jesus says, but I paid for it. I took it away. That I've made you clean. I made you a new creation, that you're righteous and you're holy and you're my child and you belong to me. That's who you are all the time. And I'm not ashamed of you. I'm proud to stand with you through it all. And so God begins to redefine how we see ourselves, how we see him, how we see other people. And that's where that healing begins to take place. See, the forgiveness was great because it took care of my past, but now I have to change how, how I see myself going forward. And that's what the tending to the hurt takes, takes care of. That's, that's where the power is. And it's so amazing to watch that happen. Where the lies that we've just been waiting, carrying, and God says, that's not true. And we release them, we reject them, and embrace what's true. He goes on and he says, John Eldridge goes on talking about how this, is, this kind of work, though, can't be superficial. It's going to involve our participation. L listen to what John says. He says, In the past, when I became aware of something in my soul needing his touch, mercy, or deep healing, I would bring it to Jesus in prayer and ask him to do so. The results were mixed. Can anyone relate to that? where they've reached out to God and they thought, God, here it is. And, and sometimes he's spoken and there was healing and other times it was just like crickets. And we're just kind of left there hanging. He says the results were mixed. Sometimes it seemed to work, sometimes not. During my road, tip, road trip to Montana, Jesus began to show me something quite helpful. We can't stand at a distance from our own soul and ask Christ to go in there and deal with it. This isn't a hostage negotiation. We don't hide a block away and hope God takes care of business. This is your own soul we're talking about. The door opens from the inside. I stand at the door and I knock. Jesus explained, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. We open the door to our soul from the inside. This is the purpose of naming a loss, feeling it, allowing ourselves to return to the place in our own being that we walked away from. We must enter this place as ourselves, the memory, the emotion, whatever it is that we're aware of, we inhabit our soul again. Jesus insists on it. Once there, we open the door from the inside, inviting Christ in, which he's always eager to do. So I think the reason why it doesn't happen, doesn't work the way we want it to work, is it's just so painful. We don't want to go there. So we're happy to say, okay, Jesus, you take care of it while I sit over here 
and you do all the work and then just bring it to me when it's all finished. Knock me out. And sadly, it doesn't happen that way. That, that the healing requires us to face it. The, the healing requires us to feel it. The healing requires us to allow that grief to be expressed, the sadness, maybe the anger. We have to actually be willing to face it with him. And I know it's scary. I know it's terrifying and it feels like it will overwhelm us at times. But the truth is Jesus says, I'm right here. I'm right here. And if, if you couldn't do it, then we wouldn't be doing it right now. But you and me together, we're enough. Well, the last, last source of anger we want to look at now is, is really the, the best one. Because again, anger has its place. It, it's, a, it's an emotion that God has given to us. And they're neither good nor bad, they just are. And they have a role, they have a function. And, and so the last one that we want to look at is this idea of where, where injustice happens. Where we see something, we experience something, and we realize that a difference needs to be made. That something needs to happen, and we need to stand for something, or we need to stand up against something. The, the famous quote you've probably all heard was by a, a man named Edmund Burke. He says, the only thing necessary for evil, for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. You see, that's, that's what's beautiful about anger is anger will motivate us to, to deal with, to take on some kind of injustice. Some kind of an injustice we see in our world where, where someone's being taken advantage of, where, where power is being abused. That anger is meant to, to stir something up within us so that along with the Holy Spirit, we can go and we can protect the vulnerable, where we can respond with His love. So why is this necessary? Because, see, too often passive people just go along to get along. And, and again, we might look at passive people and say, well, they, they just never seem to get angry. That's sort of the goal. And, and I'll tell you, my experience is dealing with passive people is far more difficult than dealing with people who, are, who struggle with anger. You see, with, with passive people, you have to get anger stirred up within them first. You have to stir up some kind of motivation within them and then direct that motivation through the Holy Spirit. Whereas with angry people, they're already motivated. You just have to now direct them through the Holy Spirit to move. And so it's much easier, it's much better to find someone who's dealing with, who's struggling with that anger because now we just need to help them address it, how, how, to, how to funnel it in the right way. And I think this is where we've misunderstood God's anger. We've misunderstood his anger, I think, the most. I think people have struggled trying to reconcile the God of the Old Testament and, and the God of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. And yet, they're the exact same character because they're the same one, right? Remember Jesus speaking to, to the, the Jews. He said, before Abraham, I am. Jesus of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament, they're of the same nature. They're the same. And so we see it in the Old Testament, that this, this God who, who experiences anger. And here's a list of them. In Isaiah chapter 1, we see that God is angry towards empty religion. 
where people go through the religious rites, but their heart is far from it. There's, there's anger with leaders who had hurt and abused their people and anger at people who reject his leaders in Numbers 11. In Jeremiah 7, we see God angry at people who lie and steal and commit adultery. And in Jeremiah 22, anger at people who fail to protect the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, and the powerless. In James 5, we see anger that, that God has at employers who don't pay a proper wage to the employees. And even in 1 Peter 3, an anger towards husbands when they mistreat their wives. See, the thing is that anger, you need to understand it, <clears throat> that anger that God has is never at you, it's for you. He's not angry at you. That anger was dealt with on the cross. It was taken away. All the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ so that his sacrifice would remove that anger. God is never angry at you. In fact, he's not even disappointed at you. Nor is he frustrated with you. Nor is he irritated or ticked off in any way. There's not a single degree or percentage of anger that God has towards you. All that's gone. Instead, the anger is for you. Let, let me illustrate to you this way. Imagine you're a little kid again, five, six years old, and you're playing on the park and the, on the jungle gyms and the monkey bars, and, and all of a sudden a bunch of older kids show up, teenagers, and they decide to play with you. They're going to toy with you and bully you, and they're pushing you off the slide and pushing you off the monkey bars. How do you feel as that little four- or five-year-old? Do you feel happy? Feel excited? No, you're angry and you're terrified, but you're powerless because what are you going to do with a bunch of teenagers? You're embarrassed. Maybe you're crying. And then your dad shows up. And your dad shows up and he is angry. He is furious. Is he angry at you, the little child? Not at all. His anger is going to work for you now. That anger is coming to protect you. You see, that's, that's the anger God has. Think about it. On two occasions, Jesus cleared the temple. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end that led to his ultimate crucifixion. But the first time where it says that, that he did, he, before he went in and overturned the tables and chased them all out, he, he, he took the time to fashion a whip. So he, he picked some you know, materials and tied it all together and played with it a little bit. I mean, that takes time. Meaning that it wasn't an impulsive action that Jesus is doing here. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And then he goes into that temple and he, he chases out the money changers and, and all the people because what they were doing, it wasn't that they were doing business in his father's house. That wasn't it. It's they were abusing his people. See, people would come from all over, uh, the, really all over the world that were Jews or returning home for the, the time of offering sacrifices. And they would say, well, you know, you, your sacrifice isn't good enough, but you know what? We've got some goats over here for sale. They're a little bit more expensive because it's, it's that time of year. But, but you can go and buy some official goats here. And they go, okay, I'll, I guess I have to buy the goat. And so uh, here, here's my money. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the wrong currency. But don't worry, it's okay. We have a, a money changer here. You can exchange the money. You know, it's, it's going to cost you a little bit, though, because 
you know, it's the time of year and all that. And so they were, they were abusing God's people. And so that's what anger got. And he walks in there with a whip and he chases out the animals. He chases everybody out and he's flipping tables. I mean, do you think he did that quiet and, and just, you know, like a, like a little mouse? He chased the whole crowd out. But that anger was for those people that were being hurt, for his people. And that's, that's the nature of God's love. It motivated him to act. It motivated him to protect. Just like that, that father seeing his child being bullied, that anger motivates him to do something to come in there. Sometimes love will even, even motivate us to confront. In, in Galatians chapter 2, we read the story, Paul's telling a story about him and, and, um, and Peter and how they're at, at the church in Antioch and, and they're having a great time, Jews and Gentiles, and Peter's discovered bacon. I mean, remember when you discovered bacon? Give me more, right? So it's bacon and, and hot dogs and bacon-wrapped hot dogs and bacon-wrapped everything. Like it was just, he was loving it and he's eating the, the Gentiles and everything was great, until a group of Judaizers came. These Judaizers were basically what we might refer to as Messianic Jews. They were Jewish people that believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but they still wanted to hold to the law, which means no bacon, which also means, though, no sitting with Gentiles and having meals with them. And so Peter, seeing them, and he got nervous, and he, he thought, you know what? I, 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 I don't want to incur their judgment so you know what? I'm just going to ignore the Gentiles and I'll just hang out with these Judaizers and everything will be fine. Except Paul sees this and he knows who Peter is in the church. Peter's a leader, meaning that if Peter does this, what, what are the other Jewish Christians going to do? They're going to follow Peter. So what does Paul do? In front of everybody, he confronts them. And he calls him, calls Peter on his actions, calls Peter on what he's doing. Because basically Peter was just trying to be a people pleaser again. That was one of his flesh patterns. And God calls him, or sorry, Paul calls him on it because he loved him. He loved him enough to confront him. He spoke truth in love. He wasn't trying to demean. He wasn't trying to attack. He wasn't trying to tear him down. He, he needed to confront him. And that's sometimes what needs to happen. That that as a brother or a sister, that we would, we would lovingly confront someone when they're, when they're doing something they shouldn't be doing because we love them enough to do so. But remember, you always speak truth in love. And so that's what can happen. And there, there's healing there. There's, it didn't destroy Peter and Paul's relationship at all. And that's what can happen is that maybe a, a direct word to a loved one be it a parent to a child, be it a, a friend to a friend or a spouse to a spouse, is maybe what exactly is required in that moment. Here's an example, though, when, when it didn't happen, when that anger didn't, didn't get acted on in a healthy way. The story is 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's, it's a story where it's after David and Bathsheba and, and poor Uriah. Everyone forgets Uriah. He just got murdered of the deal. But that's happened now, and, and God has said, because of that, there's going to be trouble on your house for the rest of your days. 
And that was the case in David's life. And the first instance of that happens here in 2 Samuel chapter 13, where, where David, he's got many wives and he's got many children. And he's got one son named Amnon, Amnon and another daughter named Tamar. Now, they're both his children, but they have different moms. And Amnon is just, I, I, want, I want to say in love with, with Tamar, but it's not really in love. He's just lusting after her. He just so desperately wants to be with her. And, and so an, another guy comes up and, and basically says, you know what, why don't you just run a little scam? Just pretend you're sick and get her to come and nurse you. Ask your father David to nurse you, nurse you and everything will be okay. And so that's what happens. He pretends to be sick. Maybe he pretends to have the vid. I'm not sure. But, but along comes you know, David and says, I hear you're sick. He says, yeah, I'm not feeling so well. Could you, could you maybe send um, Tamar? And uh, she can bake some bread, look after me. Just, it, it would mean so much to me. David's like, sure, I'll go ask her. And he asked Tamar, and what does Tamar do? Yeah, I'd, I'd happily love my brother. So she comes and all innocent and bakes the bread in front of his presence and everything. And everything seems to be okay until, until Amnon sends everybody away, pulls her into the bedroom, and then rapes her, assaults her destroys her. See, in that day, for a woman, they didn't have many options. And, and you really, the one option was for her was to get married. And to be married, you need to be a virgin. And that was now taken from her. And so she's destroyed in that moment. Her whole future is taken away from her. And, and, and then it gets worse because now that he's done the deed, now that he's done the sin and the crime, he's angry at himself, but he transfers and takes it out on her. And so he throws her out. And she says, this is worse than the first. I mean, it's not too late. Go to our father, David. At least we can be married. And at least then I can have a future. And he says, no, I want none of you. And he kicks her out. And our world is ended. No one's going to want her. She's never going to get married. She's never going to have kids. She's never going to have a future. And so it says that she went to go live with her brother, Absalom. They shared the same mom. And she was desolate. Her whole world was destroyed. Well, word spreads, and David finds out that his son Amnon has violated his daughter Tamar, and David is angry, as he should be. He is so angry. But he doesn't do anything. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, what, is that, what does that say to Tamar? That, that his, her, her own father won't defend her, won't do anything about it. It just made it okay. And it just is another violation all over again. Just failure in her life over and over and over again by these men. So her brother Absalom decides to take matters into his own hands, and he ends up killing all of his brothers. I wonder what would have happened if David took that anger and acted on it, but in a healthy way. And he goes and he confronts Amnon. He says, Amnon, what have you done? You know what? You need to make it right now. And the only future for her in that day would have been Amnon and Tamar getting married. And, and he, what if he would have made that happen, but then also kept a close eye on Amnon that he would never abuse Tamar again? 
What if that happened? Maybe, maybe the story is different. Maybe Absalom never goes and he kills the rest of his, his brothers. You see, we've seen that over and over again. The, the sexual abuse that happened in, in not just the Catholic church, but in all kinds of churches, where they just swept it under the rug and they covered it up and they made it so much worse. Or in the residential schools. What if we allow that anger to lead to change? See, our history is filled with, with people who have allowed that anger to, to produce healthy change. Think about William Wilberforce in the UK. That anger towards slavery led him to eventually abolish slavery in the UK. Or Abraham Lincoln and how he was willing to fight a war. He brought his own country to, to a point of war to end slavery in the U.S., Martin Luther King Jr.'s fight against racism. There was an anger in there, but I think he, dis he handled it so well. He never let that anger overcome him into a flesh-controlled anger. It was always a Holy Spirit-motivated, controlled anger. Or, or think about all the orphanages that have been created by Christians all over the world who are angry at the idea that there are children who are abandoned to live on the streets on their own or hospitals and the YMCA and the missions for homeless that were all were motivated by someone saying, this is not right. We need to do something about it. Or getting access to clean drinking water. My friend, my friend Louisa, she's a, she's a pastor at Alora Road, and, and she was so angry at women who would be caught in sex trafficking that she decided to start a ministry called the Alora House to give these women a place to go to get out of that, that lifestyle, and that, that sex trade. The fact that we're all gathered here this morning is a result of anger. Did you know that? That, that I, I got tired. I got tired of, of meeting with Christians who didn't know the grace of God. They didn't know who Jesus was and how much he loved them and all that he'd done for them to set them free and to make them into new people and, and united his life in them. And now he wanted to be life to them and everything they need and he loved them perfectly and purely. I got tired of meeting with people who would hear that in the counseling and then go back to their other churches only to be beaten up week after week again. More law, more dues, more failure, more condemnation. And over time, they would just slip back into their old thinking until they eventually would come back and we'd have to start all over again. I got, so I got tired of that. And so that anger began to stir within me that says, we need to do something. And God says, well, let's start a church. And so that's what we're here for. So that there can be a place where people, people can discover God's grace. They can discover the new covenant and all that God's done for them and what he wants to do through them right now. Where there's no more shame. There's, there's no more condemnation. There's no more beating people up with do's and don'ts. That they can just know that they're free. They're free. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ sets you free. And that they could experience that. Not just, not just in the teaching, but it begin to experience it as a community. Now, please understand, as a community, we're not going to get it right all the time. Amen? You haven't been here long enough. That should have been a louder amen, right? 
but we get to experience it and we get to share with one another and we get to now encourage and build one another up towards that. So anger, anger can be healthy. Anger can do wonderful things. Again, the key is that it's motivated by the Holy Spirit. And at this point, we, we, we want to maybe find some rules. Some, okay, when is it okay? When is it not okay? It doesn't work that way. See, it's, it's like everything in life. We trust Jesus. And so if you're feeling that anger, don't stuff it. Don't ignore it. Don't say, I shouldn't, or, or try to minimize it. Instead, let that anger do its work. Let it drive you to Jesus. Say, Jesus, what's going on here? Why am I angry? Is it about my past? Is it a block goal? Is someone embarrassed me? Do I need a Snickers? Do I need to go to sleep? Right? Like, what is it's happening here, Lord? What's going on? Or is there, is there some injustice here? Is there something that's not right that, Lord, you, you want to do something about now? And then trust Him. And the response will always be proportional to the injustice because He's leading it. He's doing it. And so we're, we're going to allow Jesus to lead it and we're going to allow His strength then to make things happen, to make that change that's so important. So what, is that, what does it look like? Well, maybe we need to, we need to confront someone. Have some direct words, some strong words, but delivered in love. Or, or maybe, maybe we need to um, just stop saying yes all the time to certain things. Start to use our voice and say, you know what, I'm going to say no to this because this is not okay. Maybe, maybe we get involved politically. If you're looking around and thinking, I don't, I don't like what's happening in our world politically, never mind federally or provincially, but even just in our own region, our own municipality, maybe God's saying, it's time to get involved. I don't know. That's the, that's the great thing about this, is that God, God will lead us and direct us. And maybe, maybe you get the sense that there's nothing for you to do, that you don't have a direction, at which point you can pray. And, and please understand, we've, we've minimized prayer, right? As, as if it's our last resort. But it's our most powerful weapon. Think about the, the time when Moses led Israel into battle, except he didn't actually lead them in battle. That was Joshua's job. Moses was up on a hill and he was praying. And as long as he was praying, Israel was winning. And maybe that's what God's asking you to do is to be praying, praying for, for people, praying for what's happening in this world. Or maybe, maybe what God's motivating within you is a desire to, to bring people to understand who Jesus is towards evangelism. Maybe you're looking around thinking, you know what? There's, there's less time on the clock that we're going to be around here for. But maybe, maybe you believe Jesus is going to come and come real soon. And the, the proverbial doors in the ark are going to close. And if that's the case, maybe God's saying, let's get as many people in before the doors do close. And maybe that will lead you to, to risk sharing your faith, to being a bit more forward in sharing, not in a condemning way, because that's not what we offer. We offer the ministry of reconciliation. It says God's got his hand out. He wants to embrace you. Will you, will you take hold of his hand? Again, I don't know what God's going to lead you to do, but there's so much that he can. 
All he's saying is, are you open? Are you willing to receive what I have for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible truth that we don't have to figure all this out on our own. Whether it be the, the healing that we need or, or whether it's trying to be motivated because there's an injustice we see. You're in us and you're with us and you will direct us. You will give us the words. You will tell us how to, who to go speak to, where, where help is found so that we don't have to handle it on our own. Whatever it is we're up against, Lord Jesus, you, you love us enough to walk with us through every step of it. So thank you for that. Thank you that we don't have to bury these, these, these emotions, this anger anymore. We get to actually allow it, allow it to do its purpose. Come to you to experience that freedom. And I thank you, Lord, that you're greater than the flesh. We don't have to listen to it anymore. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.